KBOO is currently running a Kickstarter campaign to build a city of media makers. From February 8th to March 9th, you can become a media maker and help spread the word. Just go to kboo.fm slash kickstarter between now and March 9th to join. Jock, Josh, Tickell about his book, Kiss the Ground, How the Food You Can You Eat Can Reverse Climate Change, Heal Your Body, and Ultimately Heal the World. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the screening of Big Pharma on Sunday, February 18th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. Big Pharma examines the problem of extreme drug prices in the U.S. and how drug prices impact business, the public, and the overall U.S. economy. The film will be followed by a discussion with Oregon State Representative Rob Noose. Again, that's the screening of Big Pharma on Sunday, February 18th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information is available at kboo.fm on the right-hand side of the homepage under Community Events. This is Kyle Carezzi, reporter and producer for the KBU Evening News. For decades, KBU News and Public Affairs has welcomed radical and spirited activists in the Northwest and beyond. As Oregon evolves, KBU is central to connecting the world to what Portland and the Northwest is creating. We put the mic in everyone's hands, and when you join the donor circle, you're powering the microphone to amplify the stories of people in your own backyard. Join us on Kickstarter today. Look uh-uh. us up and search for Help KBU Build a City of Media Makers. And thank you for your support of KBU. The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, licensed acupuncturist, your host the second Monday of every month. Before we begin, I just want to put another uh, pitch in for the KBOO Kickstarter. Uh, KBOO has given people a chance to learn, to produce, engineer, host, write, interview, and create the media that matters to them and matters to you. So please join and share our Kickstarter campaign by going to kboo.fm forward slash Kickstarter. And thanks so much for your support of KBOO Radio. Today, we're speaking with Josh Tickell, author of the book, Kiss the Ground, How the Food You Eat Can Reverse Climate Change, Heal Your Body, and Ultimately Save Our World. Josh Tickell is a journalist, futurist, author, and award-winning film director whose movies, Fuel, The Big Fix, Pump, and Good Fortune have been shortlisted for Academy Awards. They've been shown in the White House, have won awards at the Sundance Film Festival, and have been viewed by over 50 million people worldwide. In fact, this coming spring, there'll be a full-length documentary of this very book we're speaking about today. Josh Tickell, welcome to Health Watch. Thanks so much for having me. So in your book, you say, soil might save us, but we're going to have to save the soil first. So why and what do we have to do to save the soil? Well, you know, the thing that people don't realize is soil is really the basis of our health, and we've lost one-third of the world's topsoil since the late 1970s. 
Meanwhile, we've accelerated the population by a couple billion people. So we've, we've got these two trajectories. One is more people who need more food, and one is less soil that grows our food. And if we're going to continue on this planet as a more uh, numerous species, numer- you know, numerous being about 10 billion people by 2050, we're going to have to restore a tremendous quantity of the planet's soil. So, I mean, this uh, acceleration of topsoil loss, uh, when did it begin and, and, and what uh, keeps it going? Well, we've, we've lost the, this huge amount of soil due to something called the Green Revolution, which really promoted heavier agriculture in, in large swaths of land, Africa, India, Asia, South America. And uh, along with that comes a tremendous amount of chemicals and a tremendous amount of tilling. And when you till the soil and you add chemicals, the soil becomes brittle, the life in the soil dies or becomes dormant, and the soil literally blows away. We can reverse that process by not tilling, not adding chemicals, and by integrating multiple species into the planting of different crops. So it's actually very simple to restore soil. And of course, it's the subject of the book, Kiss the Ground. So it's simple. And you, you, t- you, you visit a lot of people um, you know, around the world and in this country who are working hard on it. But still, uh, are, we, are we kind of pushing the, uh, are we Sisyphus pushing, pushing the uh, boulder up the hill? I mean, how are we doing? <laughs> well, currently, you know, there is a small and growing number of people who are into this new type of agriculture called regenerative agriculture. And, you know, this really stems, this is like, the, if you consider the organic movement, the organic label, as kind of a version 1.0 of sustainable, regenerative is like version 2.0. It's actually building soil. It's building soil depth. It's building carbon. It's taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And so this version 2.0 of agriculture, uh, it's, it's kind of a do-or-die scenario. Either we do this, as a planet, as nations, we realize that this is the most important thing for planetary survival, never mind peace, never mind reducing terrorism, never mind abating climate change. It does impact all of these things. But ultimately, our survival depends on our ability to grow food. So this is a civilization-level conversation. Whether or not we take it on, that's going to that's gonna determine the trajectory of our species. So let's just go back a little bit. You were talking about not only do we have less soil, but the green revolution, so to speak, has taken the life out of the soil. Can you talk a little bit about that, the life of the soil? Sure. In one handful of healthy soil, there are more microorganisms than human beings who have ever lived. That is just mind-boggling. That's how much life is in healthy soil, not an unhealthy soil. So if you go out today and you look at agriculture, go anywhere where there's production agriculture. The majority of the U.S. grows four crops, corn, soy, hay, and wheat. The biggest crop is corn, field corn. What, it, what, what that's used for is to feed cattle. So go out into a field corn field, go out, put your hand down in the ground, and pull up the soil, and chances are it's going to be brittle, It'll be dusty. It might even feel like sand. That's not soil. That's dirt. That's soil that has been heavily, heavily degraded. And so what we see 
in the majority of production agriculture now, in the majority of the world, is the same thing. We've degraded these soils, and we have to use more and more chemicals to prop up the soil. That's not a long-term solution for feeding anyone, never mind cows or humanity. So the question becomes, how do we reverse it? And that's really what we tackle in Kiss the Ground, the book. You know, it's interesting because you talk a lot about climate change, and I want to get into that in, in, in a moment, but also, you know, about the, the health of the soil and the health of our bodies. And we know there's now a human microbiome project that's studying exactly what you said, this, the, the, these microorganisms in our body that really outnumber us. And there's also an earth microbiome project I found uh, that's, that's happening where people are really studying the microbiome of the soil. So this kind of, there is this parallel between the health of the soil, that microbiome, and our health of our microbiome in our own body, right? Exactly. We, we know that a vast percentage of the cells in our body are not actually human cells, meaning they are, in fact, bacteria, the same bacteria that live in the soil. This is my theory is this is why kids eat dirt instinctually mm-hmm. to acclimatize their, their biome with the biome of their local uh, ecosystem. But regardless of that, what we know is that we're really dirt on legs. <laughs> we are the same thing as soil. And so if you're eating food from degraded soil that doesn't have that life, it doesn't have those microbes, you're not feeding your gut the type of material that it needs for the microbes in your gut. And we we think that our body processes nutrition. It's not true. The microbes in our gut process nutrition, and they pass that nutrition to our body. Microbes die and we die. Same with the soil. So we our health and the health of the soil are, are identical. And that's a huge missing piece of perspective from the current model of industrial agriculture. So how long do you think it would take for industrialized farms to get their microbiome back? It, it takes three to five years. And, and the changes... Um, at first are not easy because, not because of the infrastructure, but because of the mentality and the, the sort of industrialization of education, of farm education. And I always get, you know, a couple of hate mail uh, emails after these radio interviews because I say, look, look at production agriculture today. How did we get there? We got there through education. Look at the land-grant universities in the United States. Who sponsors them? Major chemical companies, chemical ag companies. What, what are they interested in? Are they interested in reducing chemicals, increasing soil health? No. They want to hook you just like a drug dealer does, on making sure you always need their chemicals, which is absolutely ridiculous because the soil, the animals, the plants, and the ecosystem evolved for millennia without chemicals. Why do we need an exponentially more amount of chemicals to make exponentially less food? That is a profiteering position. So what's happened is our agriculture, our food, and how we think about growing food has all been hijacked by a very small group of companies that make a lot of money from it. Right. So if we go back, you know, like you talk about this farming for millennia, you know, the terrorist uh, farming in, in Asia and in, in South America, it's all over the world, right? You know, the soil was did very, very well. And and yet now things have really shifted because of this industrial uh, 
agriculture. Um, so, you know, what is it going to take, do you think, uh, culturally to get to help people get back to this place of farming and producing ample amount of food because there's healthier soil um, to really change this? Well, I, I think it's I think it's two or threefold, and this is what I talk about a, a lot in the book. Is first of all, consumer demand plays a huge role, and uh, you know the biggest criticism I get about about this type of food, regenerative or sort of the next version of organic food, is oh, it's too expensive. I can't do it. Um, and and the reality the reality is, it takes an adjustment of mentality. Uh, even people who are who are struggling with basic sort of fundamental necessities, you know, farmers markets more and more accept food stamps. I've never seen a negotiation at a farmers market that didn't have the farmer say yes, meaning, hey, I'd like I'd like to buy all that broccoli, but I don't have six dollars. I have two. Farmers want to sell their produce, so it, it really is about engaging the source of your food. Okay, that's, that's one part of it is consumer demand. The second piece is obviously legislation. We've got a, a piece of legislation that essentially subsidizes farmers for growing the wrong thing. It's called commodity crop insurance. And this is, again, a very hot-button issue for people in agriculture. They hate it when I talk about this. But I firmly recommend removing the commodity crop insurance altogether in the United States permanently. It is... Uh, you know, it's a pork barrel system that ensures that soy and corn are grown, fed to animals, and again, who profits from the sale of those unhealthy animals that are grown in feedlots? Of course, groceries, middlemen, and, and, and the, the feedlots themselves. So we've really subsidized a system that is taking our tax money and moving it through to the profiteering of, again, another small group of people who have bastardized what it is that we're supposed to eat. And the, and the third thing was, so you have the consumer demand, the legislation, and... So you've got consumer demand, you've got legislation, and ultimately you've got young farmers, millennials. And this is, this is probably the most exciting of the three opportunities, because as we look at farmers in the United States, we see a graying of the entire farm industry. Within the next 10 years, 40 million acres will change hands, meaning 40 million acres worth of farmland that is being farmed by people who, on the average age of 65, they will leave their land. And it's going to go to one of two places. It's either going to get consolidated into corporate farms, or it's going to be taken by younger farmers. And what we're seeing with younger farmers, of course, they're not as adverse to risk. They want to try new things. The organic movement's been firmly established for a while, so people are looking at that going, hmm, maybe there is a way to grow food without using all these pesticides. Maybe I could be part of the change, and that's where we see the biggest hope. And uh, is there uh, also a kind of a move to uh, bring in young farmers uh, around uh, the U.S. or around the world? There is. We see this in the coasts. We see more women farmers on the coast. We see more young farmers in the coast. Organizations to nurture women and young farmers. Um, we don't see it as much in the Midwest. Again, the flyover states. That's where the majority of these commodity crops, with their with their insurance scheme, are grown. Uh, so it is starting on, on on the left and the right side of the country, and it has to work its way in. Right. Well, there was an interesting moment in the book when you. I think you were talking about pulling into some motel in Kansas and the woman asked, what are you doing here? And you were talking about, you know, 
saving the soil and you said she practically jumped across the counter to give you a big hug because she was talking about all the dust and all, you know all the, the the kind of sorrow they have there about losing their soil it's you know it, it's the old frog boiling in water scenario we've got of course if if we just had beautiful fertile soils one day and the next day we had the situation that we have today in the midwest which is chronic chronic erosion through wind, uh, mostly through wind, a bit through water, but mostly through wind, just blowing away, literally dust blowing away. If we just, if that happened in a day, uh, people would be screaming, you know, there would be riots in the streets. <laughs> they, would, mm. you know, they would think the apocalypse had happened. But mm. because this has been a slow, chronic thing that's happened over the course of 200 years, we, we failed to realize the severity. When you see dust blowing across a field, it the the thickness of a ton of dust is is the thickness of a piece of paper mm. so if you see dust blowing across a field a ton per acre is the thickness of a piece of paper that's how fast we're losing topsoil in america wow that's stunning a stunning statistic there so let's let's take this now to you know the, the health of the individual we got that now with the health of the planet in the beginning of the book, you, you talk about meeting Stéphane Le Foll, who's the Minister of Agriculture for France, and his movement to um, to get the carbon out of the air and the oceans and back into the ground. Can you just talk to our listeners about what that is and, and why that's beneficial in, in helping reverse climate change? Or so slow the, it down? <laughs> yeah, of course. What we, what we realize... It, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, is that the carbon in the atmosphere was increasing. That's what the general science community realized. And they began to map carbon, specifically by putting a, a carbon station at the, the South Pole, the North Pole, and one at the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii. And, and as the maps came out, the, there was a general increase over time. But what was really fascinating about and what is still fascinating today about the carbon map of the atmosphere is it goes up and then it goes down it goes up it's oscillating and then it goes down right it's an oscillating wave and in general terms what this means is the planet is breathing Mm. meaning during the winter months as trees die off leaves die off things decompose fall to the ground carbon is released during the spring and the summer, as plants thrive, carbon is brought back down to the ground. And so in a, in a balanced ecosystem, that oscillation, that line, is more or less static. It's straight. But due to fossil fuels and all sorts of other things that we humans have done, the line is going up. What's super exciting about that oscillation is every year a tremendous amount of carbon is brought back down to the ground. Now, because we've degraded the soil, the soil doesn't have the same ability that it once had. But globally, soil is the biggest carbon sink, meaning it's the biggest place we can put carbon. Can't put more in the atmosphere, can't put more in the oceans. But the soil has the ability to sequester at least, at least given a very small amount of work, the yearly increase in carbon dioxide that we're adding through fossil fuels. And that's what Le Foll in France and his team with the 4 for 1000 program, uh, that's what they determined is a very small increase, 0.04% 
of soil carbon on agricultural soils could mitigate the current increase in carbon dioxide. There's nothing else that can do it. Soil can literally, literally reverse climate, reverse global warming. So how how would it th- how is that being done? I mean, is it done by like as you said in the beginning of our interview about building back the health of the soil, or is there a, another method used to quote biosequester the the carbon back into the soil? Well, we've got we've got to think on on two different scales, and one is the micro local scale, and one is the macro global scale. And when you're thinking about the micro local, you're like, how do I do this? How do I build soil? Very simple. Any ground that is not covered, meaning bare soil, remits CO2 and water to the atmosphere. Very simple. If it is covered with plants, it pulls carbon dioxide and it pulls water in. So number one, no bare soil. So that's it's cover possible. crops in the winter and all of that. It, exactly. Cover crops in the winter, never leaving your soil bare, and planting into cover crops, planting cash crops into cover crops. That's number one. Number two, tilled soil. When you till the soil, you release carbon dioxide, you release water. If you do not till the soil, you do not release that carbon dioxide in the water. So no tilling. Very simple. John Deere sells the same machine as a tiller, except it's called a no-till drill. And uh-huh. Instead of disking up the soil, it just puts a little slit into the soil and drops the seed in. So, again, you know, not a big change in technology. Same tractor, same farmer, same farm, same ranch, just a different machine you're pulling behind. So no-till, cover crops. And then the, the, other, the other aspects are really very simple, animal integration. You know, we've separated animals and crops. I don't see anywhere in nature that nature separates animals and crops. They're always integrated. And the reason is because they function as an ecosystem. So integrating livestock back onto the ground, making sure that they're eating the cover crops, they're always moving, they're never staying in one place, that provides the soil with healthy nutrition from their poop. And so you've got this beginning of a managed ecosystem, and that is how we restore soil. And what I found, what I didn't know before was that, you know, the acidification of the the oceans at this point, right, is is reaching a tipping point, but that actually by by doing this biosequestering of carbon back into the soil, we can actually pull the carbon from the atmosphere so it doesn't go into the ocean, correct? Correct. It's a balanced system, and the, the, the biogenic cycle of the Earth will work to balance the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And, and right now, the mechanism that it has is the ocean. So oceans are absorbing the as much as they can. So if we want to let those oceans remit the CO2, you have to lower the CO2 in the atmosphere. The only way to lower the CO2 in the atmosphere is to draw it down into the soil. Hmm. So you talked uh, a bit in the book about things that people could do. I mean, we have to work on this micro level. You talked about working, you know, on a local level, uh, you know, farmers markets, but also with legislation, etc. But what could people start to do in their homes, in their lives to support, you know, getting connected back to the soil and, and building the health of it? Mm. Well, the first, thing, the first thing to do is really education. Get a copy of Kiss the Ground, the book, download it, or get an audio copy, whatever. And, and, and get yourself educated about this, because if you're interested in climate, if you're interested in food, we now have a way to connect those two things 
and really activate the first reversal of global warming since we began this fossil fuel journey. So the second thing, of course, we talked about food, but there are so many subtle choices that we make as consumers. We vote three times a day. We mm-hmm. vote three times a day in America, most of us, who are, you know, who are lucky enough to eat the way we eat. And, and mostly what we're voting with is monocropped corn, monocropped soy, and you can tell what you're voting by looking in your cabinets, by looking at what you're eating. Is it coming out of a box? Is it coming out of a bag? Is it coming out of a carton? Nine times out of ten, that is reprocessed corn and soy, commodity bulk, that they are trying to sell you to get rid of it because they produce too much. So the first thing is to cut that industry out of your dietary choices. And that includes, that includes factory farmed meat. Most meat will go through some kind of factory farm. It is only the grass-finished meat that does not go through a factory farm. So I tell people, look, if you want to vote for the, if you want to vote for the climate, um, vote with your fork, vote with your knife. So and what about the, the reduction of, of eating meat as well? I mean, people talk a lot about that, that even doing one, like a meatless Monday uh, or some one day a week of, of not eating meat can make a big difference. Is that, is that true? It's not, it's not going to make any difference, okay. unfortunately. <laughs> the reality is, and this is, this is the same as, uh, you know, let's boycott ExxonMobil after the Exxon Valdez spill. You know, these industries are, are resilient. They are rigid. They are strong. They, they, you know, they understand supply and demand much better than consumers do. What will make a difference is when demand on the whole shifts away from factory, from factory farmed meat that's fed commodity crops. That will make a difference. Right. And we're, we're seeing it. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, you could get your organic food from, you know, a farmer somewhere. But now, I mean, 40 years ago, really, I mean, it's, it's available everywhere. It is. And, and that's the result of one thing and one thing alone, consumer demand. Exactly. Yeah. So I understand you've made a full-length documentary of the book. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yes. It's also called Kiss the Ground. It's coming out this year. It's very exciting. Uh, it's, the film is the journey that you get to take. <laughs> Instead of reading the book or listening to the audiobook, you get to watch it in 90 minutes. Now, you don't get the level of detail, but you get a greater level of emotion. So you get to meet these characters. And there's a lot of science. It's not boring. They're cool graphics. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful journey because it, it really contextualizes the, the climate issue. Uh, the book focuses more on food. The film focuses more on climate and soil. And um, will it be out in the theaters or will it be streaming? Or where, where, where will, people, will people have to set up uh, events and show the film? Or how will people be able to see it? Well, we we obviously want people to to set up events and show it in their living rooms. We're just working out the streaming uh, deal right now, so it's either going to be streaming on one of the major services. Uh, so yeah, you'll be able to get it directly in your home. So, um, Josh, what are you most optimistic about in terms of change, and and do you feel like there's there's really hope out there to improve the health of the soil, the health of the planet, and the health of individuals i i'm going to answer your second question first i do feel that there's absolutely hope 
you know, my experience with this type of work, and obviously I've been involved in alternative fuels and, and other environmental causes for 20 years, I often find that the trajectory has to go in two different directions at once. The, the first direction is a broad-based movement, people becoming aware. That's why I say, you know, what's our goal? Our goal is to create a million like-minded, peaceful soil warriors. I want a million people to understand this information. So that's the broad-based movement. The second thing that I see is often it's one or two individuals at, who happen to have their hands on a lever of power that make a shift that, that, that is the tipping point that shifts everything. Uh, and that's, that's what we really go for. We, we you know, try not to think that, that this is so big that it can't get done. We got into the industrial agriculture model in a very short period of time. I'm talking between the end of World War II and, you know, 1950 or 52. That's, that's five or six years. We built, this, we built the current model, the destructive, ridiculous, insane model that we're destroying the planet with. Uh, we built it in five years. So it can completely be rebuilt in five years. I think this is very doable, and I, and I look forward to, you know, many of your listeners participating in the Kiss the Ground conversation. That's great. So how can people uh, reach you or be in contact with you? Folks can get online and get, go to Kiss the Ground Book, kissthegroundbook.com, and you can also check out my website, Josh Tickell, J-O-S-H-T-I-C-K-E-L-L.com. Well, Josh Tickell, thank you so much for being with us today on HealthWatch. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak with us and our, our listeners. Thank you, and thanks, thanks to all your great listeners up there in, in Oregon. Thank you. We've been speaking with Josh Tickell, author of the book, Kiss the Ground, How the Food You Eat Can Reverse Climate Change, Heal Your Body, and Ultimately Save Our World. It's available at bookstores everywhere. And again, I just want to remind you about uh, KBOO's Kickstarter campaign, and it needs your support today to help build that strong infrastructure for the next generation of culture workers, voices, artists, and DJs. And that's, you can go to kboo.fm forward slash Kickstarter and make your contribution. Thank you so much for listening to HealthWatch today. You can listen to this episode and more episodes of HealthWatch online at kboo.org slash HealthWatch. KBOO Radio trains media makers. We believe community resilience happens when citizens learn how to make their own media. For the last 50 years, KBOO has trained thousands of citizen journalists to report on what goes on in the streets of Portland and far beyond. We know that with our expertise and your support, we can keep this city activated and aware through radio. Invest in Portland's future media makers and join KBOO on Kickstarter today. Look us up. Search for Help KBOO Build a City of Media Makers. And thank you for your support of KBOO. This week on Making Contact. What came first, coin or the ledger, is unclear, but physical currency and a written tally of debts and payments have been the two primary forms of currency used throughout history. Today, physical cash is increasingly being replaced with cashless systems, including cryptocurrencies. On this episode of Making Contact, we'll hear from a blockchain researcher about an ethical framework she created for developers of blockchain. But first, we go to Athens, Greece, we're making contact contributors, Nikki Seth-Smith and Alyssa Moxley, look at how some Greeks have been using cryptocurrencies since banking restrictions were imposed in 2015. 
the Greeks, they don't trust the Greek governments, not this one. All the governments, I think, from 2010 till today. So I think capital controls will stay here because if they remove capital controls, everyone will get their money to their beds <laughs> or to send it to other countries or somewhere else. It's not surprising that many Greeks have lost trust in both the state and the banks. The Greek economy has been in meltdown since 2010, when the country's huge 